The talk tonight is about the sure heart's release. The sure heart's release. In our practice here, we begin to understand how the mind and body interrelates with one another as these changing aggregates. Through mindful awareness, we bring in a very natural kind of tender, compassionate care, attention to our moment-to-moment experience. We come to see that this comes naturally. It's not, we don't have to force it. We come to see that through this, our minds and hearts can unfurl open, unfold, where we feel folded in upon ourselves, the places of the mind and heart where there are hidden experiences, but with the tenderness, the compassion, these places open up and we see what's inside those places. We also learn through our equanimity practice how to bring some balance to it so that there is this lessening of reactivity and there is this strengthening of connection and also the lessening of apathy, the lessening of that disconnectedness to what we're experiencing. So more and more through the direct application of uh, equanimity and through equanimity as it's developed quite naturally through our practice, there's more workable balance uh, with regard to these changing conditions that arise through in our practice. We begin to see and experience with more clarity what's going on within us. As I mentioned this afternoon, a big part of our equanimity practice is developing that sacred path back to our hearts over and over again, seeing more clearly what's going on there without the um, closing down, without the uh, pushing away because it's hard to be with with places inside of ourselves. So the, the distortions begin to be seen with more clarity. This enables us to see easily what is wholesome, what leads to suffering, and to relinquish that or to refrain from going there. It also leads us to see what is wholesome, what leads to the end of suffering, what leads to more harmony within ourselves, and we cultivate that. We are able to go there more spontaneously. When the Buddha was asked over and over again, what is his teaching all about? He said in different ways, but I'm just putting it in a nutshell. He said, we learn what is unwholesome and we don't go there, we relinquish that. We learn what is wholesome and we cultivate that. And based upon these two, wisdom deeply grows. So this is what we're learning very uh, naturally in our practice. This is the beginning of the purification of the roots of suffering, those three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
And through the purification of that in our hearts, as those are lessened, the lessening of reactivity through equanimity, the true nature of life unfolds to us. We're able to, uh, the mind is able to see that more and more clearly, more and more readily, without pushing. It just happens very naturally. And we come to know the possibility of that place with a great deal of faith and confidence so that no matter what happens to us outside in this ever-fluxing conditions of the world, no matter what uh, what pebbles or rocks are thrown in the pond of this uh, mind of awareness, no matter what it looks like from the outside, inside we know that we can always come back to a place of safety, a place we can rely upon, a place of clarity that we know what choices to make, what intentions to follow through on. We know that it can always respond at the right time. So tonight I'd like to talk about the various refinements of our practice leading to happiness, leading to peace. Understanding that it's not about acquiring anything at all when we're doing this practice. Sure, we talk about we want more happiness and peace in our lives, but it's not requiring a thing or even spiritual knowledge. It's not about attaining anything, even meditative states of bliss and good feelings in the body and in the mind. We learn that it's all about relinquishing. It's all about letting go. It's all about seeing the way to do that. It's not so easy to just uh, intentionally let go. We see that the great fulfillment in our practice comes from the purification of the heart through allowing um, our hearts and minds to uncover what is uncomfortable, to reveal what uh, may be so difficult to experience, to see. The purity of heart that is realized by understanding greed, hatred, and the delusion of both of those things so clearly, so reliably, that we don't take it uh, towards suffering. We see that this purity of heart comes from dispelling ignorance, most of all, because we see clearly, moment to moment, how things are, even if it's difficult to open to. This is the establishment of wisdom. So this process of mindful awareness has immediate and far-reaching benefits We see these immediate benefits in our practice. We practice here the Brahma-viharas, metta, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy sometimes, equanimity in this particular retreat. These are some immediate benefits that we see. But the far-reaching benefit is something that we sometimes don't take to heart uh, as often. Maybe we don't think that we can accomplish that far-reaching benefit. 
we may not aim so far for realizing that. We may come to practice because we may simply just want to be happy. We want to find a little bit of ease in our lives. We want to be able to sit on the cushion without a lot of pain. And that's fine. But that really isn't what the teaching of the Buddha or the Dhamma is all about. It's good to practice in ways where we realize those benefits, where we don't feel that we're the victim of circumstances out there, where we don't have to depend on outer circumstances for our happiness. But it's good to know from the very beginning or the middle or wherever in your practice what the true aim of this teaching is all about. When I first started practicing, what I was searching for were some immediate benefits, and maybe not so immediate, but I wanted to be able to rely on some place inside of me, not outside of myself, where I could go to that place inside of me and feel safe, where I could really depend on my ability to feel some kind of unconditional love, to feel uh, a knowing of where, what, what I could do, what I could say when I had to take action and speak, and speak in the world so that I was doing that from a place that was not causing my life or others' lives more harm. But a lot of my looking for peace and that kind of happiness came from just needing more quietness in my life, more of a a space of day-to-day place to go where I could rest my attention. And as some of you know already from hearing stories from both myself and Steve, this first came to me when I um, came back to America after having children and living in the Philippines, coming back to America and being a single parent. And really, In the first times of my motherhood, I didn't have to take care of them. So uh, I came from a culture in the Philippines where there was uh, help to take care of the children. Actually, there was one person for every child. And so I lived a kind of, um, oh, I don't know if it was a good life, but that was a life, that was how it was then. And I learned a lot from that time. When I came to America, I didn't have that kind of help at all. So it was really a hell realm to be a single parent and to be with children who were kind of spoiled in a way. I mean, just a a little example, just trying to teach my eldest one how to fix her own bed. You know, she was about five. And um, she said, now she's 41. (laughs) And she said, "I, I... I don't have to fix my bed, Mom, she said to me in Tagalog. And I said, why? And she said, I'm going to have maids to fix my bed. (laughs) She never realized that, actually. (laughs) But, um, you know, that's what I was faced with, that, that kind of attitude with the children. And so I took them one day with me on an outing, which I, you know, usually did. We always did some kind of outing when I wasn't working, having you know, one job, one part-time job, and another job on the weekends to try to keep things together. And when I had some free time, we went out 
um, around what we call in Hawaii holo holo. And holo holo means, you know, going on the horse like that, holo holo, but we would do that in the car. And so I took them to this place uh, where there was this kind of spiritual fair where they had all kinds of things in this great big gymnasium that you could take part of. And when we first came to America, we lived in the Bay Area. So I went in, and they didn't want to go in there. They were pulling on my skirt and, or my shirts, and they wanted to go home, and crying and whining and um, all kinds of hullabaloo with them. But I just went in, and I, this place was huge. It was like 10 times bigger than what we're in here or more. And I looked around and I saw all kinds of things, all kinds of places where there was incense and oming and drumming and, you know, pictures of all these gurus. That was in the 70s and that was the time then. And there was, down at the very end on the right-hand corner, there was this big sign that said, Silent Retreat. So I made a... (laughs) I made a beeline for that place. You know, I didn't care about all the other things that were going on. I just went to that sign. And that's where I found out about the pasana, about this meditation. Um, Now I can't remember what retreats we spoke what at, but maybe in this retreat Steve spoke of this book, Beginning to See. Did you hear that from him? Okay. Well, he learned in the 70s about Vipassana, first through this book called Beginning to See. And I learned about Vipassana at around the very same time on the West Coast, when he was on the East Coast, from that very same book. In fact, I went to a retreat that that author was sponsoring. So it's sort of, you know, like all these connections, these karmic connections. So I was able to go to a weekend retreat during which time I was asleep most of the time, or if not, I was trying to frantically balance my checkbook during the walking periods, you know. But I went, and I really took in a lot from that time. I was just searching for some peace of mind, you know, just for the moment. But it was in those very first retreats. I can't remember if it was that, that first one. But perhaps it was the second one where the second retreat was, I took a big leap. From the weekend retreat, I went to a month long. That was kind of like my, I just had my hair was on fire with the Dharma when I heard about it. And I knew this was what I was always looking for, probably, you know, from a previous life. So I didn't attend the whole thing, to, um, truth be told, because I had to go home and take care of kids and come back, etc. That's another story. But in that first retreat was the very first time that Manindra visited America, and that's when I met him. He did his first month-long retreat, and I was that one of the participants. And from the beginning, from the very beginning, it was always made clear to me by that teacher and by other teachers that this kind of short-term happiness was not the ultimate aim of the practice. Those were benefits that indeed came along the way, and that there was a possibility to realize something more far-reaching than that, that there was a possibility of experiencing an unconditional kind of peace, a 
kind of peace that didn't depend, depend on anything outside or did not even depend on the present habit patterns that I had, of course, but it depended on something that could be experienced and that we as yogis should indeed aim for. And every time that it, it, it so happened that my teachers turned out to be these kinds of renunciates and um, monks and a renunciate like uh, Manindraji, that every time I went to a retreat, it, it was always mentioned about this far-reaching uh, goal. And um, so in recent times, you know, we've been talking among us in the Dharma family and saying, we don't say this much. You know, we, we talk about how we can have, you know, this kind of happiness that's short-term, but what about the long-term, the far-reaching? And so this is why I wanted to talk about that unconditional realization of deep peace in our hearts, in our minds, in this very life, not something that is uh, so far off that it's in a future lifetime or only experienced by others. So this is called what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. And these are the words of the Buddha from the Majjhima Nikaya. This is from the discourse of the simile of the heartwood. It's a beautiful discourse and um, maybe more later on the whole discourse, but I'm giving you the heart of it now. The Buddha was addressing bhikkhus, and for those of you who are new to the practice, bhikkhus um, are, in, in general, they're monks, that, and these were the monks that began their spiritual journey with the Buddha. But bhikkhus really refer to anyone, a man or a woman, lay people or monastics, who take up the practice, who take up the holy life. It doesn't have to be in robes. So we wanted them to know in this very first part of the practice that it's not that of the discourse that it's not about being popular because in those days you know you could take on the robes and you would be somebody of renown and uh, so that's what the first part of the discourse is about and he was telling them clearly it's not about that at all so these are the buddha's words so this holy life bhikkhus does not have gain honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind and heart, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. That is what the Blessed One said, according to the Sutta. And the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the, in the Blessed One's words. So the Buddha makes it clear that the attainment of gain, honor, and renown, which people thought at that time might happen because they just became a monk in this uh, monastic realm of the Buddha, that was not what it's all about. Even being virtuous, 
even taking up the precepts and refraining from harming and considering oneself a virtuous being because one does no harm in the world. It's not about that either. It's not either about concentration. Of course, concentration is part of the practice, but that's not the end of the goal. It's not about knowledge, the knowledge of all kinds of things we could come to know of, uh, spiritual knowledge, vision, psychic powers, the Buddha was referring to uh, in terms of vision. One of the things is psychic powers. These are indeed part of the path. The benefits of these are experienced by some people. And they are onward leading uh, if we're not attached to them. But they're not the goal of the practice. The true goal of the practice is this sure heart's release. And that means the release from all greed, all hatred, and all delusion, from the endless cycles of suffering caused by greed, hatred, and mostly delusion or ignorance. This is its heartwood, its end. And some may have a questioning mind about how can we live with greed, with, without greed, without hatred, without delusion. It's so hard to even imagine that that's possible because we live so surrounded by it, inwardly and outwardly, of course. But of course we can live without those. When there's non-greed, when there's generosity, when there's non-hatred, when there's metta, loving kindness and compassion, which also includes equanimity, when there are those factors of mind that we're working with, that we're acting in the world with, of course we can live with that. And when there's non-delusion, when there's wisdom in the world, in our lives, in our hearts, we act based on all of that. And so it's very possible to live in a world without greed, hatred, and delusion, to live without that in our hearts. So when the Buddha speaks of this unshakable deliverance, he's speaking namely of Nibbana, of the unconditioned. And some of you have mentioned to me or Steve directly that that's not what you've come to the practice for. And that seems, can seem so far off and otherworldly. And that, that's true. I, I can understand that. We can understand that and agree with that. But it's helpful. It's, it's um, our responsibility to impart the whole path and not just part of the path to you. It's one of the reasons why we offer the pra- this practice and this way of understanding through generosity, not charging for it at all, because we need to be able to give you the whole teaching without just giving you what may feel comfortable to your ears or that you can agree with and it fits into your present niches of understanding. The, the Dhamma, all understanding, all new understanding, if we really open to it, has to come from a place of our willingness to open to what's not comfortable for us. When we can't do something, can we still be there and do it? and see what may come of it, even when it's not comfortable for us.
So literally, uh, Nibbana, what does that mean? Etymologically, it means departure from craving, which is the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is craving. So Nibbana means, when you break those words down, departure from craving. Ethically, it means the eradication or the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. Metaphysically, it's spoken about as the extinction of suffering. And psychologically, some people talk about it as the elimination of egoism. But I want to refine that to make it clearer and more in alignment with the teachings of the Buddha. It's the elimination of the wrong view of egoism. And why do I say that? Is because the ego doesn't exist in the first place. And so it's not eliminating it. <laughs> it's eliminating the wrong view of it. So how do we live this holy life going towards that goal? It is said that there are three areas of life that we can pay attention to as we uh, go forward on this path. We can pay attention to these areas and we can bring mindfulness to these areas. When we say pay attention to it, means that we can actually practice them with mindfulness. This will support the profound liberation that we're on this path on. And I might add that there are many people who have been on the path and don't even um, understand you know, how to get to the end of suffering. They just do one step at a time. They practice being good people in the world, um, eliminating greed and hatred from their actions and behavior. And because of their purity of heart, it's so um, powerfully onward leading that there are, I could say, many people that experience Nibbana just because of their uh, purity of heart, that it just pulls them um, towards Nibbana, towards the unconditioned. Uh, we know of such people. So what will support this profound liberation is, are the three pillars of the Dharma. It's a kind of a framework that Manindra had taught us the three pillars of the Dharma. They all require the practice of mindful awareness. The first area is dana. It's the practice of giving. It's a practice of giving of oneself through the inner cultivation of generosity, the attitude of generosity. So dana is the act of giving and the frame of mind, the attitude within, is generosity. And this is called kaga, C-A-G-A. The second area is sila. It's the mindful practice of living in harmony with others. And sometimes this is called morality, sila. It's refraining from harming through speech, through behavior, specifically through those areas. The third area is bhavana. And bhavana means to bring forth or to cultivate what is not yet brought forth. So it's bringing forth 
these two areas of development of the mind. So in the bhavana area, it doesn't have to do with speech, behavior, or the kind of the acts of giving, but it has to do with cultivating the mind in the two areas of cultivating concentration through tranquility practice or samatha practice and through the cultivation of wisdom. And this is through vipassana practice. Really, both of them support, uh, concentration supports vipassana. So just these three, and uh, there's a story that I love because sometimes it can, I love this story because sometimes the whole path can seem somehow so overwhelming and so complex um, and so big. But I love these three pillars that Manindra pointed out. They're also known as the three bases of merit in the Buddhist teaching. But Manindra called them the three pillars because he said, this is what you can make your foundation of living your spiritual life. And you don't need much more. Just pay attention to these areas. So it brings it down to something so simple for us. He always made it simple. There's a story of the Buddha walking through the forest with his monks. And um, these monks were all uh, had greatly cultivated minds. Many of them, if not all, you know, sometimes in the stories they would say he was with 500 monks, meaning there were many, and they were all arahants, or fully enlightened beings. So he bent down, scooped up a handful of leaves, and he asked, which is more, O monks, the leaves in the forest or the leaves in my hand? And of course, that was a really easy question for them, being arahants. <laughs> so, so he said, the monk said, of course, O blessed one, the leaves in the forest are more than the leaves in your hand. And the Buddha replied like this to them, the knowledge of the fully enlightened one is like the leaves in all the forest. But what I teach is like leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for freedom, for liberation. So this was a great relief to me when I kept hearing <laughs> Manindra says, this is all you need to do, pay attention to these areas. And the Buddha would say in different ways, you know, there's the three of this and the four of that and the five of this. And different ones of us kind of land in different areas and say, okay, I'll pay attention to this three or this five or this two. You know, the Buddha would say, I teach one thing and one thing only. And that's what a lot of my yogi friends say they like to hear. Suffering and the end of suffering. You know, of course, that's two. He was kind of <laughs> tricky there. But um, what, whatever yours is, you know, let yourself fall back on what's simple, what you can practice. So there are many variations in the ways the Dhamma has been laid out so that it could be remembered and handed down through the generations. You know, it wasn't written down for at least about 500 years. It was... Uh, it was uh, said out loud. 
So you, you have come to know some of these aspects, like mindfulness. You've come to see, as Steve pointed out, in the seven factors of enlightenment, it's within there. And the five spiritual faculties, it's there as well. So many of these are overlapping, and um, we see their value in different places. One of the ways the Buddha taught rests on this foundation, the three pillars of the Dharma, or the three bases of merit. Giving, morality, and the development of the mind and the heart. And it's really important to understand, as we have constantly been uh, reminding, is that it's all based on practice. It's not based on theoretical knowledge. We can know it from here, but if we don't know it from here, it doesn't come across in our lives, and it doesn't, doesn't get transmitted to others through our being. So not only do they promote a sense of well-being for others when they get transmitted, but of course that open-hearted connection with those places inside of us promotes a deep sense of well-being here within us. So if you take, for example, dana, the, the practice of giving, and sila, the practice of really what it is. Dana is also giving, but it, what is it giving? It's giving safety. It's giving a sense of safety to those around us because we have taken the commitment to refrain from harming through speech and behavior. So when we do that, we see that people around us feel safe. People around us feel a sense of connection, a sense of harmony, a sense of um, well-being. And when we look inside ourselves, because we're uh, speaking and acting in these ways of connecting through giving, of connecting through a sense of um, refraining from harm, protecting life, etc. We feel our intrinsic goodness. This is so important in our practice, to feel our goodness, because then we feel safe that we can touch base with those places, and we can live from that place. It's a reliable place to go to. A lot of the fear and insecurity that we feel in our lives um, as human beings, and a lot of what I hear when people speak with me or what I hear from um, other teachers when the yogis speak with them is about fear, is about a sense of insecurity. And this is because, in large part, we don't know where to go to rely upon ourselves. Our habit patterns can be so strong that it just goes there right away instead of going to a place within us where we can really rely that we won't act out, that we'll maybe wait before we'll say something, we'll consider this is what equanimity is used for. Not that we just say things are just as they are, but that we have a chance to look inside of us to say, from what place am I acting or speaking? And then we make the decision to go forward. We're not so plagued by feelings of unworthiness or disconnection or self-deprecation. I've seen that in 
in my own practice. And I grew up in a um, I grew up in a in an Asian family, and um, the women didn't speak so much, you know, but we knew kind of we were power behind the throne in a way. Um, but there was not so much sense of that we could say something. It was the men that would speak a lot. So it took me a lot to be able to uh, just speak the truth. And it, there were a lot of moments of cringing, you know, of letting the Dharma come through, but feeling a sense of, is this adequate, you know? So really through the years have had to work through that. And coming to a place that I could rely on in myself of saying, um, this heart is worthy of giving the Dharma. It's worthy of speaking the truth. And I can rely on that because I've seen that it can go to a place of goodness, that it doesn't always fall into a place of unworthiness or a place of like um, aversion or attachment to a sense of myself or a sense of how I think it should be for everyone. So it gives us a kind of faith and confidence in ourselves. It gives us the courage to keep going when we have that deep sense of well-being within ourselves. With the practices of bhavana, um, this concentration and uh, the development of wisdom through vipassana, Bhavana brings forth a depth of understanding. A lot of us may not be able to articulate that sometimes. I, uh, when you all speak to me, I hear it between the words a lot. You're, you're saying a lot of wisdom, just seeing things as they are. Little comments like, you know, the mind can't hang on to anything. That's deep wisdom. Or saying, it's so evanescent, I can't hold on to a sense of self anywhere. You know, that's deep wisdom dropping into the mind. Or saying things like, you know what? Nothing gives any satisfaction that's lasting. That's really deep wisdom. Because from there, we, start, we stop trying to grasp out at things. Of course, we enjoy what's there, but we don't have to hold on to it. So it brings forth that unshakable faith to really live in a place of freedom, not just talk about it. So I want to flesh out these areas. Um, I want to talk about the first and the second pillar of the Dhamma tonight. And then later, I'll talk about the third pillar. So the first one is dana, the practice of giving. It's more specifically this act of giving when we say dana, in um, understanding it more deeply, and also from more extensive um, teachings from my own teacher and reading about it, of course. The practice of giving, of letting go, is what dana means. The attitude of generosity is kaga. It's what's inside. So we're coming from that attitude of generosity in the act, 
of giving. It said that there are two aims um, and two results, of course, from those two aims in this act of generosity from the attitude, this act of giving from the attitude of generosity. And both of these aims and results come from ever-deepening wisdom. We do these acts of generosity with mindfulness and we notice more and more that they're coming from a very deep place of knowing that it's good to give because it helps others. Of course, this is the first aim. It helps others. When we give of ourselves, our time, our energy, our kindness, our compassion, our material resources, just being with someone just to let them tell their story and let them get that off their chest. This is giving of ourselves. So it doesn't have to be something tangible like um, a bell or um, a check. It's ourselves that we're giving, really. It relieves their suffering when we do that, not just in the present moment, but it might relieve their suffering for future times. Just knowing in, in one time of somebody's giving, just knowing that they're there for you, and that could happen for a future time again. Um, this is a great relief of suffering for people. You know for yourselves how it can be when you have been given gifts of time, of an open heart, of a listening ear. Some of the things we don't think about in giving is that in, it inspires in others a sense of worthiness. So I, I just checking this out for myself. You know, when people have given to me, I feel sometimes not worthy of the gift, but a lot of times through um, continued receiving, I feel a sense of worthiness. And so I come to know that this is a great gift that we give to others when we give to them. And you see that they develop that a sense of they're worthy of gifts. They're worthy of being given to. Um, one of the great delights in my practice is passing by someone and, um, or knowing someone and, and, and thinking, you know, I bet, I, I don't know but for sure, but I bet hardly anyone gives that person metta. You know, like somebody on the street in Portland where we spend some time because my daughter lives there. Or, um, I don't know, a cat. <laughs> or uh, an animal that lives nearby. The big pigs that come around our house, you know, that I sit, <laughs> I sit sometimes and know that the great, those big boars are out there somewhere. And it gives me great delight sometimes to offer them, to give them loving kindness, and to think, you know, maybe hardly anyone gives them that, and that they may be receiving some part of my care, my love. And when I've given that way to um, some people, you know, people that I know, 
they're surprised sometimes that I would give them something. And I like to think of doing things like that just because it may give them the gift of knowing they're a worthy person, that um, they don't have to be some great yogi. Um, So that's something that's great that we can give to people, the gift that they're worthy. That gives them a sense of inner richness. You know, people don't have so much sometimes, but they can feel that they're worthy of people's care and attention. And that's a richness that goes beyond all material goods. It may inspire gratitude in others when we give. Maybe not always, but a lot of times it does inspire gratitude. And we know for ourselves when we feel gratitude. So many of you today spoke of gratitude, uh, that kind that isn't just about saying thank you, but that kind that comes from a deep sense of thankfulness for the teachings. We know that when we feel that, our hearts melt, and we're able to take in more, and uh, we're able to experience things that are hard to experience when we come from a place of gratitude. So it's a wholesome attitude. It's a gain for them when we give like that. So there's more than just material giving. There's so much more that we could see into it when we really give. There are so many places that we can give, that we can have that sense of fulfillment in ourselves. There's such a happiness when we give. Um, It's said that in a moment of giving, three, uh, 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 there are things that come up in our hearts. Loving kindness, of course. We give with loving kindness. We may have compassion when we give because we see the suffering of another or the future, the possible future suffering of another person. We want to make it easy for them. When we give, we, have, we must have equanimity because as our teacher says, to part from what is ours, even if it's just our time or a listening ear, we have to have some sense of balance, some kind of patience that's part of equanimity. And of course, there's joy. A lot of times when we give, we feel a sense of joy to be able to offer ourselves to others. So um, all of these are a gain to us, to ourselves. And this is the second aim and the second result of giving, because we feel the gain for ourselves. And this is no small thing to experience loving-kindness, to experience compassion and joy and equanimity. It brings a happiness that no one can take away. This is from the Buddha's words in uh, one of the suttas. If beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them without sharing them with others. 
nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there were anyone to receive it. I remember Manindraji um, saying this to me, you know, in the beginning when he taught me about generosity and he asked me to understand what my acts of giving, uh, what was behind all of that and where it was going and where it might be coming from. In fact, this whole teaching comes from Manindra. And so um, he would say this to me, and one day I knew, I understood, he really has taken that in, this sutta and these words of the Buddha. They would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. One time I came home, he was there at the house, and I came home from being away, working, and leaving him at home, coming back to give him some food or to see how he was doing if I left him some food to eat his lunch. And um, I would say, how are you doing, Manindraji? I've left you here by yourself, and uh, so sorry I have to go to work, but that's what I have to do, and this is how it is. And he would understand, and he would say, no, he would say, it's okay. I'm never lonely. I have the dog and the cat and all the birds and all of nature sending them, offering them metta all the time. Also the unseen beings here, the devas, the celestial beings in the trees. He believed in all of that. He would know that they're there. And he'd say, and I always offer some of my food. Uh, And I'd say, who? Who are you offering your food to? (laughs) he, He would say, I offer them to the insects in the house, to the ants and to the roaches, and of course, that's why we had so many bugs in the house at that time. (laughs) So he really, really took that to heart. He would share that, you know, with, with everyone. And even when we sat at the table together to eat, whatever was put on his plate, he would know the power of giving. He didn't have much, but he would give what he had, and he would, um, take what he has on his plate and give it. Sometimes just put it in your mouth, you know, put the banana in your mouth from his hand or because that was that act of giving had more karmic value when it was direct, powerful like that. So um, powerful, helping ourselves by the development of compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy and loving kindness. When you look at it closely, before you give, you know, when you just think of giving, there can be joy if there's no stinginess in the mind or fear of lack. Uh, There can be some joy, moments, or maybe big-time joy. In the act of giving, in that very action, there can be a lot of joy. And then afterwards, when you look back, there's a lot of joy. When you feel like, oh, Yeah, I gave something that really made that person happy, had a sense of worthiness. So a story. Um, There's a nun in Burma that I feel very close to, and her name is Kamala also. Kamala Nyani. Nyani means wisdom. And Kamala is the lotus blossom that opens to wisdom. And so... um, 
She doesn't have much. You know, she's a very accomplished medical doctor, and she's younger than I am, and she, um, she is a beautiful person. Physically, she's really beautiful, and she's really humble, and she's so adept in the teachings. Sometimes I would come in, and she would be my translator for Upandita, and as I would come in, she, Upandita, doesn't waste any time in the, in the walking in mindfully to do the bows. He would be teaching a monk or a nun, so he'd be teaching the translator. And she would be repeating the words of the Buddha, memorizing them. And then he would be correcting her. And then I would see her so, so sincere. And um, so I, I have great pleasure in giving her things, giving her a shawl, giving her medicines to help her give to others, um, giving her an umbrella. So one time I went with this idea, when I leave, I'll give her my shawl and I'll give her my umbrella, and I'll give her the medicines. So all during my retreat of the uh, month I was there, I had so much happiness just thinking I was going to give her these things. You know, this very humble, beautiful, she has no idea of her beauty, I think. And so I said uh, to her uh, just before the ending of the retreat, I have some things to offer you. Ma Kamala. Ma is kind of a sign of respect. And she says, oh yes, let's, uh, let's make the time. And giving is a very formal act in Burma because it has such, the act has such power that you want to give personally, not just willy-nilly, like leave this here in a paper bag and say this is for you and not leave a name. You know, you, you really want to you want to put your whole heart into it. So she says, out of respect for the act, she says, let's make a time. So she made a time. I met with her. She, we went into a place where we could be together and quiet. And then she, she stood up, you know, with great reverence. And um, then she said, yes, uh, Sister Kamala. And then I, I said, I have these gifts to give you. And so I, I was gathering them, and I put them in my hands. And you give with both hands. You, give, you put them in your hand, and you give like this, because you give with your whole body. And I said, this is what I have to offer you, and I'm giving this to you, and, but they're very small. And she stopped me, and she said, uh, Donna, giving is not small. She said, Chaitana, which is the uh, act of generosity from within, that intention to give, Chaitana uh, Kamala is not small. And it was so like, I just really, really got it. And then when I gave to her, she just received with full, full uh, sincerity and happiness that I was giving to her. You know, because it was done that way, I I will never forget that. Probably on my deathbed, that will be a remembrance of that huge, um, it was small gifts, but it was, you know, that act of giving meant so, so much. So this is letting go, 
It's just, it's not just letting go of whatever we have to let go of, but it's letting go of greed. And when we do this from the beginning to the middle, to the end of our practice, to the end of our lives, it becomes a very, very powerful force in us. It develops a sense of inner wealth, of inner richness, counteracting a sense of poverty, inner poverty. Um, we remember it that if we remember it, we remember it so strongly that. Uh, we can come to that place within us. So generosity is a medicine for clinging. It's the medicine for holding on. It, not just holding on in the material sense, but holding on to areas of life like views and opinions, holding on to the need to be right, to the way we think it should be, holding on, of course, to greed in all its forms. It has far-reaching benefit. The result of letting go in the long run is, as Achan Shah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and happiness. And this, of course, is in the, um, the non-experience of Nibbana, when, that, when the unconditional. So the, the letting go into that requires this kind of letting go over and over and over again. So it has that liberating result. Through dana, we cultivate non-clinging, which leads to the highest happiness, the third noble truth of the end of suffering, the sure heart's release. So tomorrow I'll continue on with the second pillar of the Dhamma, and then the um, last pillar of the Dharma cultivation of um, bhavana. So ending again with this quote from the Buddha. So this holy life, bhikkhus, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of heart and mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.